Hi, my name's Mary. I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank the committee for asking me. Um, this is real important for me to be here now, and it's part of my recovery and just part of my whole life just to be in Joplin, Missouri. It's just a real pleasure. Um, I also want to um, thank Rick for doing the taping. Um, you know, I sometimes wonder I probably wouldn't be up here if it wasn't for him. <laughs> And that would have been all right, too. It's not the easiest thing in the world to get up in front of people and uh, talk. Uh, some people are born to be circuit speakers. Some aren't. And uh, uh, I remember uh, I was down in uh, Brownwood speaking, and that's where I was really blessed to uh, have uh, our Alan on speaker this morning who asked me to speak down there at Woman to Woman. And uh, it was so nice to hear her. Just want to thank you. It was beautiful. And uh, I had the opportunity of um, really meeting her about a year and a half ago, but I never really got to talk to her that much when I was in Brownwood. But it was a real blessing to hear her today. Um, anyways, the Al Anon speaker that I spoke with down there uh, told me that um, even as nervous as I get to talk at these things, she says, Honey, she says, your phone won't ring if God doesn't want you to talk. And she said Johnny Harris had told her that and um, passed it on to me, and that was a real, real, um, real blessing for me. So here I am, and I guess I'll let you know that um, the program says that my name is Mary T.S. Somebody told me that meant tough um, manure. Was that it? <laughs> Anyways, my first name is Mary Thayer, um, and it says I'm from Espanola. And I am probably for another three weeks. <laughs> You're going to hear an accent. Um, I was raised in Massachusetts, but I sobered up in California. So you can see I'm kind of a traveling drunk. And in three weeks, I'll be going back to Maine. So here you go. Don't even know my name. You don't know where I live. I'm just real anonymous here. Um, Oh, I don't know what I want to talk about today. I suppose I want to let you know I drank a little. Uh, I didn't get here just because I burnt the toast one day after a martini. You know? um, I was raised in New England in a small town called uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts. Nice little town. It's kind of, um, I guess you'd say, upper middle class. I was raised by um, some very nice people, uh, and I was raised to be proper. And I was a kid that was real curious, and I wanted to ask a lot of questions, and I wanted to know what was going on, and that wasn't proper. I was supposed to be seen and not heard. And I was raised by these nursemaids because they wanted to have me kind of out of the way a lot of the time. At a young age, I um, do believe that I started my alcoholism. It was part of our family. And you know, uh, where I was raised anyway, um, there was a lot of money and I didn't really hear the word alcoholic. In fact, usually if people have a lot of money, they aren't considered alcoholic. 
They drink a little too much, maybe, but um, they're not really alcoholic because they usually have enough money to get out of things. Um, it's not for me to say what my dad was, but maybe he quacked a lot. I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow. Or maybe he wasn't. I don't know. He always got up and go went to work. And, but neither here nor there. This is my story. I... Um, realized that we didn't get along too well and they realized it and in about 12 years, 13 years old, they sent me away to school. And at that time, I do, do believe that that's where I started my alcoholism because I don't remember that many of the other students making hard cider. I don't remember them really stealing their liquor from their father's liquor cabinet to bring it to school to get through the, the semester. Um, but I did. And it worked. It was wonderful. It made me act proper. I mean, I could do whatever they wanted me to do. I did not have to uh, um, act out. I could be okay for them. So, to me, it was fine. But then uh, I left that private school, and um, well, I did something he didn't want me to do. You know, it wasn't proper to go into show business, so I did, and. Uh, I started traveling around the country. I was with a little thing called the Water Follies. I used to be a professional swimmer, and um, and we really drank. And um, when I came back from that, I was waiting for another show to start, and he said, you're not staying home. He said, uh, you need to get a job. And I went into Boston and, and uh, found a job and, and was living in Cambridge, and I met this young man. And... Um, I got pregnant, and then I got married because it wasn't proper to be pregnant without being married in those days. And um, it wasn't the fun marriage uh, that I'd grown up with. You know, I think every woman has some ideals on what, how they're going to grow up, and they're going to uh, have this white picket fence and this home and this, you know, this uh, lovely marriage. And it wasn't like that at all. I had married an alcoholic, of course, and he wasn't the fun type. He was the type that, um, you know, battered you. And uh, our weekend guests most of the time were the local police. And, you know, it just wasn't a fun time. Uh, it wasn't a fun pregnancy. And, um, and after I had my daughter, uh, and, you know, it was an interesting thing. I, I'm just so grateful for one thing. Uh, I can remember, um, for me, alcohol made me very sick when I was pregnant. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God. I used to be able to say, um, just as long as I've ever stayed sober. You know, and I'd try every once in a while to have a wine or something, but I just couldn't do it with that child. She just didn't want that type of thing in my system, thank God. But he did. And uh, after she was born, um, it, it continued, and it was hell. And when she was about eight months old, um, one morning he got up and beat me up, and then took her and put him in, put her in the car and drove off. And we had a little triumph, when, and it was um, the old type had. It was convertible, and there was no car seat. And when I watched him drive off, I said, son of a bitch. Maybe he'll jeopardize me, but he won't jeopardize that child. 
And I picked up the phone and I called my mom and I said, Mom, I just can't stand this anymore. Can I come home? And she says, Yes, honey, I've been waiting for this call for a long time. And I thought to myself, Why the hell didn't she ask me then? You know, but maybe it wasn't proper to, you know, interfere, you know, type thing. I don't know. And so I went home to this home again and, uh, and it wasn't proper to talk about what had happened, and it was a scary thing for, I mean, I was all of maybe 19, 20 years old when I left this this guy, and uh, I had a little child, and I had been beaten for several years, and uh, it just wasn't the thing that we bring up at the cocktail parties, you know, type thing. So uh, I wasn't I wasn't allowed to talk about it, and I think that's when my alcoholism became... Um, what do you say, over the line or whatever, I had to have it in order to to not feel. And uh, that wasn't what they liked. I mean, I was supposed to be home at 10 o'clock, and I hell with that. I mean, that, as I always say, you know, happy hour wasn't over at 10 o'clock. It was, you know, uh, I had a lot of drinking to do until the glue laws closed us down at 12.30 or whatever it was back there. They didn't like that, so after a year or so, they kicked me out of the house. And, you know, after a couple more years in that hometown, uh, my reputation caught up to me, and I took what every alcoholic does, you know, geographical cure. And I I left uh, Massachusetts, and I moved to California. Now, I got to California, I was probably 24 years old. I had a half-sister out there, and uh, other than that, I really didn't know anybody. Um, the last five years of my drinking out there, uh, I can't tell you too much about because when I got out there, I was trying to take a uh, typing test, um, and my hands were all over the place. Um, alcohol by then had hit me physically, and this um, sister told me to go to a doctor, and the doctor sent me to a psychologist, and he asked me if he thought. I'd drank too much and I could be maybe uh, alcoholic and I said no what's the matter with you you know that's the thing that was making me sane I felt and I said no I don't drink that much and he gave me this little pill called Valium now I was a daily drinker and I'm sure he told me not to drink but I didn't hear that we have selective hearing too I think and um, so I was a daily Valium and a daily uh, drinker after that. And uh, what I actually used Valium for was when you come to at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, when you're jumping out of your skin after you've passed out from drinking, one of these little pills will just quiet you down enough just so that you can get up to get through the next day. I used to wake up and uh, something was trying to get me and so I progressed to the point of putting a knife between my box spring and mattress so that I could get whatever was trying to get me at night and I'd cry myself to work and I'd cry myself home and then I'd drink myself into a stupa and I'd come out of these blackouts and I'd be screaming at the only thing that I loved most in the world which was that little girl I get to the point that I could not guarantee 
how I would act as a person, and I didn't want to be around that little child. So I didn't come home. There was a woman in the apartment building that had a daughter that babysat this child. And I would call and I'd say, could you watch Candace? And every hour I'd call. And finally they'd say to me, why don't you just leave her overnight? And I would. And I'd pick her up in the morning. This one morning I went over to pick up this child and the mother looked at me and she said, um, why don't you have some coffee, Mary Thayer? I said, well, thank you. She sat down and she started to talk to me and she broke her anonymity and she told me that she was an alcoholic. Now this was kind of impressive to me because I knew that she was like an engineer or something over at Lockheed, that she'd studied at MIT in Boston, and I didn't know that people were alcoholics like this. And I listened to her and I was kind of fascinated and I said, my God, I said, I have these friends that could really use this. She said to me, well, honey, we have open meetings. I said, well, I'd really like to know more about this, but I've got to go to work. And she says, oh, well, we have one tonight. I said, well, I don't have a babysitter. She says, oh, yes, you do. My daughter would be happy to watch Candace. I came home from work that night, and um, I was really, you know, I didn't know what was going on, but I, I was really interested in what she said, and, you know, um, so I went over to her place, and uh, I walked in, and she says, well, she says, I can't go with you tonight. She says, uh, my sponsor wants me someplace else, whatever that was. And she said, and, but I, 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 my husband will bring you to a meeting, an open meeting. And I said, all right. And so Dave picked me up, and we went to a meeting, and it was... Um, it's not there anymore, but it was a Friday night meeting uh, in Winneka. I walked in that room, it's probably about as big as this. Big meeting in California. And uh, everybody was laughing, and they were well dressed, and they were smiling and everything. And I thought, well, this is nice. I mean, it's like the PTA or something, you know, they're all smiling, they're very happy people. And, you know, someone walked up to me and said hello, and Dave said, I'd like you to meet Mary Thea, this is her first meeting. Oh, is it? Well, let me get you some literature. And, you know, and brought me all these things and brought me the 20 questions and stuff and said to me, um, I said, oh, and she says, no, don't, don't answer that now. Someday when you're all alone, answer these questions one at a time. I said, well, thank you very much. And uh, I was sitting there and someone else sat down next to me. So, you know, and I said, no, no, I'm just visiting. California, it's kind of an up area with AA, and it was um, Friday night, and uh, it was uh, birthday night, and, you know, people were getting birthday cakes, and out there they sing out a key, and, they, you know, and there was a lot of laughter and sharing and everything, and I was like, oh, this is really kind of interesting, you know. This is probably everybody's come. It's an open meeting, you know. Everybody's here, smiling, joking. And then this woman stood up, and she talked, and... Um, uh, she told her story. And she was the first woman alcoholic in California. Her name was Sybil. And she had something that, that, like that 
I think it was 34 years or more of sobriety at that time, and she had more sobriety than I was old. And as she talked, this lump in my throat would get up here, and all of a sudden I'd swallow and I'd start, just about the tears would start to go, and then I'd be laughing. And it was all over. Um, we were clapping, and uh, Dave turned to me and he said, uh, how do you feel, Mary? And I said, I could cry. And he says, go ahead. And I started to cry. <clears throat> and he walked me up to Sybil. And he said, Sybil, I want you to meet Mary Thea. This is her first meeting. And she turned around. She wrapped her arms around me. And she said, welcome home, honey. And that was um, September 13, 1973. Um, I've been home for almost 19 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I spoke one time at a meeting, and the speaker after me said that she hates people who say they felt as though they were home. But damn it, it's my story, and I felt as though I was home. had never been welcome at home. They had had nursemaids take care of me. They had sent me away to school. The home I thought I had with a husband I was beaten. So when I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a hole in my gut and the wind was blowing through. I felt like a shiny tooth, you know, that was rotten inside, looked good, all right drill a little bit and there's this big black hole. I didn't care what you people said to me, I'd have done it. Not everybody comes in that way. But I drank all I could. I was dying. I didn't want to wake up anymore doing what I did to that kid. We laughed and on the way home Dave said to me, I want to tell you about the disease of alcoholism. He said that it's a progressive disease. It's kind of like catching a bus. You know, you get on a bus and you can ride it from here, from Waneka, all the way down to Skid Row. Or you can get off right here in North Hollywood. That's up to you. That's up to you. I went home. He brought Candace over. I put her to bed. I came out. He left this big book, Alcoholics Anonymous on my table, and he left. He said, I'll see you tomorrow, Mary Thier. Come on over if you want to. I said, thanks. I was sitting there all by myself looking out that window in North Hollywood. All of a sudden, I remember those questions. I was all alone. Maybe I could answer them one at a time. And as I answered them one at a time, at the end, there was three little statements. One, if you'd answered one or more, you probably are an alcoholic. Two or more, you probably are or something. But um, third, you, if you'd answered three, yes, definitely you were. And I'd answered 17 of them, yes. And I sat there and I didn't know whether to laugh or cry because I'd just come from a place that I had felt something. There was something in their eyes. <laughs> and I felt so good. And I said, my God, I'm an alcoholic. The next day I walked over to this woman's apartment 
I walked into her home and she said, well, how'd you like the meeting? And I said, I guess I'm an alcoholic. She said, yes, I've been waiting for you for a year and a half. Right up front, I want to let you know that this woman was a very big instrument in my sobriety. I love her very much, but this is how it went. She says, now let me tell you. She said, uh, you're going to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And she says, and you're going to get a sponsor who's been into this program for five or six years that's into the big book and the 12 and 12. And she says, now you be ready to go at 7.39. She says, oh, by the way, she says, you on any drugs or anything, honey? I said, no. Improper. She says, you're not on any Librium or Valium or anything? I guess her daughter had been sneaking around my medicine cabinet. I don't know. I said, well, I'm on Valium. And she says, no, honey. She says, that's a dry drink. I said, but you don't understand. I mean, if I don't take that Valium, I end up in the hospital. And I said, and I, you know, I'm having a heart attack and everything. She says, no, honey, that's a dry drink. She says, you don't use that. I didn't like her very much. <laughs> and she said to me, she said, now you be ready. And I said, well, all right. I mean, after all, who'd been waiting for me for a year and a half? I mean, you know, might as well. Well, she belonged to some group in Alcoholics and Arms out there. It's kind of known as the Pacific Group. She had a sponsor. We had people going in the backyard cleaning up goat shit or something every Saturday. And they really get into it. And they do exactly what they're told to do. So she started telling me what to do. And she brought me to these meetings and she says, now you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to do this. She says, now you've got to get a sponsor because I was going to be going back east at um, 37 days sober for my father's um, surprise birthday party, 75th birthday party. It had been arranged forever. And she kept saying to me, you're going to get drunk if you don't get a sponsor. I don't know about the rest of you people, but when you came in, did you know what a sponsor was? Anybody ever tell you? What's the big book? doesn't say big book on that at all, does it? Nobody can manage. We have our own lingo here in Alcoholics Anonymous. It takes a while to understand this. And I don't know how to get this fund. What do you do, interview? I mean, I don't know what you do with these things. All I knew was that I didn't want her. That I knew. But she didn't lead me wrong. She was hauling me all over the place, and I was crazy. I don't know about the rest of you, but some of you people do come in through these rehabs, and I wished I had, but I, I didn't. And on why I didn't die, I don't know. 
But I thought I was gonna, and I don't know how many of you people have cold turkey Valium and booze, you know, um, all by yourself. So I was not too cool. I was shaking a lot, and they'd say, oh, just fill your cup half full, you know. Hang on your ass and shake it out, you know. And, so, <laughs> and that's just about what I was doing. And she'd say to me, well, come on, we're to this meeting. And I'd be working, all right, all right. You know, and then afterwards, they all have to go to some damn coffee shop, and then they all have to drink coffee all night, and then you have to get up, you have to shake everybody's hand before you can leave, and, you know, and hoop to hoo and hoop to hoo And one time we were someplace, I don't know it was in Santa Monica someplace, she'd hauled me there, and she said to me, she said, now, she says, you're going to read tonight. I said, what? She says, you're going to read. You're going to read something before the meeting. I said, what? And she said, I don't know, it could have been how it were. I have no idea what it was. And I said, no. And she said, you don't say no to an AA request. And I said, no. And she wouldn't talk to me. Oh, God. I was a wreck. I was just absolutely a wreck. I thought, well, Christ, she's going to kick me out. I mean, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here at all. And so there was a coffee break at that meeting, and she got stormed off the moon and stuff, and I sat there. And uh, there was this little man. I don't know where he is. Thank you, God, for him. He was sitting there, and he didn't get coffee, and I went over and I said, <laughs> I said, could I talk to you? And he said, yes. So I told him what had happened. And he said, how long have you been sober? And I said, oh, wait a minute. And he says, for God's sake, this is the only thing you have to do is not drink and find a meeting you are comfortable in. Thank you. The only requirement is a desire to stop drinking. Doesn't say anything in here that we have to read. I'm saying the in here that I have to get up here. All you have to do is state your name and your illness. They tell me and say, I pass. If you want to say, I pass. Some of us, that's all we can do is say, I pass. Well, I have to share. I didn't have anything to share. Well, I think that night afterwards we were in a coffee shop and there was a woman there and she seemed calm. She started talking to me, and she must have known this woman, and she said, well, I go to a little meeting out in the valley, and she said, um, maybe you'd like to come to it. I said, yes, yes, because every time I'd come home, Rosemary would be saying, have you got a sponsor yet? And I'd say, nope, nope, still looking. So I drove out that Thursday night and um, went to that meeting out in the canyon. It's called the Canyon Groups in Chatsworth, California. I walked into that meeting, and there was a man in that meeting, and he, he was talking about the big book. Oh, I got all excited. I said, oh, thank God. Somebody, this must be sponsor material. You know, this is somebody that is talking about the big book anyways. Possibly he's been in the program long enough, you know, the qualifications on whatever I was supposed to get. Well, I walked up to him after that meeting, and I said, um, 
Excuse me, sir. Um, I'm new, and I was wondering, I haven't bought a big book yet, and uh, I'd like to buy a, a big book. He looked at me and said, you would? I said, yeah. He said, all right. He said, uh, I'll, I'll sell you this book. He said, well, let me tell you a little story about how I got my book. And I said, all right. So he stood there, and he told me this story. He said, when he came into Alcoholics Anonymous, he had a sponsor, and in those days they called them adversaries. And his sponsor told him to buy the book, and he wanted to see the receipt because he knew he was a thief. And he said, I want you to read that book. And he read that book, and he looked for the loopholes, and he found them. And he wanted to really tell the sponsor, adversary, what was supposed to be in this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he walked into North Hollywood Radford and he said, uh, Larry, I want to talk to you about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, you do? He says, yeah. He says, I'll talk to you about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous when you can tell me what's on the first page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So he went back and he memorized the first page that says something to the effect of we are 1,000 or 1,000 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and he continued to memorize that first page and when he was all done, this took a little while, he went into the club and he looked up Larry and he started to recite this thing and Larry listened to him for a while and he says, nope. He says, what do you mean, no? He says, that's not on the first page of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says, it is too. He says, it is not. So he went back and he looked and then he saw the contents. So he memorized all the contents. And as I said, it just took a while. It's about three months for all this to go on. So he'd go in and Larry would say no and he'd say yes and everything. So one day he went home and he was looking in his big book. And he realized the first page of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, said Alcoholics Anonymous. So he walked into Rapid and he found Larry and he walked up to him and he said, Alcoholics Anonymous. Larry said, no. He says, what do you mean no? You told me if I told you what was on the first page of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, you'd talk to me about it. He says, give me that book. There's nothing on the first page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if it took you three months and you couldn't figure that out, how long do you think it will take you before you know what the black lines of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says? said to me, would you find a sponsor? I said, I think so. Been in the program a while? I think so. Well, that's good, she said. And the next week, I hightailed it out to Canyon meeting, and I walked in there, and I was so excited. There he was. Oh, thank God, I can go over and ask this man to sponsor me. 
After the meeting, I ran up to him and I said, I said, well, hi there, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. And I said, I have this question. And he said, yes. And he said, I said, I'd like Noah, would you sponsor me? And he kind of leaned over and he said, well, you know, honey, he says, since I got married, my wife doesn't cotton to me sponsoring women. He says, but see that redhead over there? I said, yes. That's my wife. She's got kind of a Mickey Mouse program. <laughs> but possibly, she'll help you out. I walked over that woman. I sat down and had to wait, you know. These old timers, they always got people around them. And after a while, she turned around and she looked at me and she said, Yes. I said, would you um, sponsor me? She looked over at me and she said, did you just ask my husband to sponsor you? <laughs> I said, yes, I did. She said, why did you do that? So I told her this whole story. At the end of that time, she said to me, I'll be your temporary sponsor. She says, you'd be at my house next Monday night with the big book in the 12 and 12. And she says, we'll get you back to Massachusetts. And when you come back, she says, you look around. You look around for a woman that you want what she has and you're willing to go to any lengths to get. She says, sponsorship is very special. She says, you really have to be particular on who you choose. And I truly believe that. I believe for every single one of us nuts, there's a bolt but we're going to have to find who that is. It's a very important thing to be a sponsor. It's very important to have a sponsor, somebody that you can trust, somebody who will teach you what the black lines of this book say so that we can live. She used to say to me, Alcoholics Anonymous is a place where we learn how to think for ourselves and live in the outside world. It's not a place where we come and hide. I arrived at her house the next Monday, sat on her couch, and she asked me to tell her my story. And when I was done, she looked at me and she said to me, one, honey, one day, honey, you're going to tell that story in the first person, not the third. And I said, what are you talking about? She says, you told me that story, and it was just like somebody down the street you didn't even know. You had no feeling attached to that story. She says, you're going to learn to share those tears, honey. So I'm going to tell you what you're going to do with the first page of that big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. She says, on one side, you're going to write down the telephone numbers of people that you meet that you might want to need to call or want to talk to. So on the other side of that page, she said, as you go through this big book, you are going to find lines that are going to jump out at you with a big light bulb, and you're going to go, uh-huh, uh-huh. She says, you're going to write down the page number, and you're going to write a little synopsis about what that line is. She says, because one day that you might be just going along, and she said, you might get a little crazy. 
she says, you might be flying up your ass. <laughs> and she's going to need to get a hold of somebody. And she said, and there's going to be nobody home on that phone list. She said, and you're going to turn that page and you're going to find where in the big book it's going to tell you how you can stay sober. She said, I want you in a book study and at 12 and 12 once a week. It's your choice what you want to do. I chose a book study. I chose to be in um, a man who's, at that time when I came in, he had 25 years of sobriety. His name is Mike R. And he has a uh, book study in Studio City. And I went there every Thursday night. And it was wonderful. And we had, as a group conscience, chose him to be the leader every every uh, Thursday. Um, he used to talk at that time about not getting into the big book Alcoholics Anonymous um, for more than 10 or 15 years. And he was a miserable so-and-so uh, for that time in his sobriety. And uh, for the past 10 or whatever years, he had been into the big book and his whole life had changed. And I had some clarity moment which said, well, possibly if I get into the big book prior to that, I don't have to wait 10 or 15 years before I can get some relief. Um, I really enjoyed John last night. Um, I enjoyed his um, coincidences. I had one of those. I hadn't, I've had many, but the first one I remember very explicitly. Uh, I've always wanted to have a meeting where you just talk about coincidences. I think that's just, it's just so uh, what we're all here about. I told you I had to go back east at 37 days of sobriety, and I was scared, really, really scared. I didn't want to leave this California home that I'd found. I was in North Hollywood, Radford, and it was the weekend before I was supposed to go, and I was just really upset. And somebody said, what's the matter with you? I said, I go back east next week. And I said, you know, they said, why? And they said, because I said, it's my father's, you know, birthday, and it's been planned for a year or so, and everything. I've already had the tickets forever and all this stuff, and those days used to do that. And so. And the person said, well, fly American Airlines, AA all the way. <laughs> so I went home and I looked at those tickets and I had American Airlines tickets. And it was, I said, well, good, good, that's good. And so then um, this woman, Rosemary, had a person staying with her that had about the same time as I did. And she came running in the house that Sunday night and I had been packing, you know, and everything, getting things ready for my daughter and I to go back. And she said to me, right there, I heard your story. I said, you did? Did you get her name? Did you get her name? Yes. She says, I did. I said, oh, wonderful. That's great. And so she, she, she said she could call her tomorrow. I said, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. You know. And they tell you in here, you stick around until you hear your story. So anyway i called her the next day and i said hi i said um, my name's marithia and i was told that we have similar stories she says, oh yeah she says yeah i remember the girl telling me that and and uh turned out she was raised in marblehead and so was i raised in marblehead mass you know and uh as we talked it turned out my best one of my best friends older sisters was her best friend you know and it, I thought, well, isn't that amazing? She didn't know that woman had died of alcoholism at the age of 27, I think it was. And so we talked about that for a while. 
And so then as we talked a little bit further, it turned out that her parents had sent her to that psychiatrist too, who had sent, told her to send them, her away to school. And I said, oh my God, that's what happened to me too. Didn't you hate him? Yes, I hated him too. So we get talking about that and everything. And so after a little bit, then, you know, I said, well, she said, well, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just a wreck. She says, what is the matter? And I said, well, I have to go back to Marblehead next Thursday, and I'm just a wreck. It's just like I'm just so scared. And she says, well, honey, she says, you think you can hang on to the following Tuesday? I'm due back there then. So we met in our hometown. Now, I don't know about you, but there's like three million people in the San Fernando Valley. And she came from over the hill. <laughs> and somebody had been at one meeting who came home to tell me that. Huh. I remember I called Beverly. I was so excited. I said, Beverly, listen to this and everything. She says, oh, I love to hear these coincidences. I just love her. She says, let me tell you something, honey. You know how you feel? I said, yes. I feel as though I'm right, right with God. I just know that God's with me and everything's going to be good. She says, honey, good. She says, now I want you to lock that into your mind. Lock it in. Lock this feeling in. She says, because there's going to be days that you're going to have to draw on it. There's going to be days you're going to have to draw on that feeling. I went back, I met that woman, I came back and as I looked around, um, I decided I wanted what Beverly had and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. And I'm proud to say that um, I've been doing that for almost 19 years. Uh, she's been my sponsor. Um, she taught me a lot about what the big book is. She taught me a lot about um, how to live soberly. I wished I could tell you that I did it all perfect. I wished I could tell you that um, she just told me to do this and this is exactly what I did and everything was just fine. But they used to have a thing that said you make a 180 degree turn and that takes some time. I thought that all the ants, all I had to do was learn what the black line said, which I did. But to walk what the black line says, that's another story. First couple of years of sobriety, I was what Beverly used to say, self will run riot. You know, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it, and unfortunately I usually got it. And she would always be saying to me, Honey, stop doing the things that hurt you. I didn't like hearing that. She used to say to me, Honey, she says, What are your limitations, your boundaries? I didn't even know what she was talking about. I had no idea what she was talking about. I felt like that chameleon. And she used to say to me, Honey, you know the difference between a chameleon and an alcoholic? I said, No, what? Not all of you are going to get this. The difference between an alcoholic and a chameleon is that the chameleon does not get on plaid. <laughs> I didn't know he was talking about then. I mean, 
I was unplanned. I didn't know who or what I was. I had a little problem like our previous speaker <laughs> had to do with married men. <laughs> Unfortunately, some people come into the program and stop doing the things that they did when they were drinking. I didn't. Beverly would sit me down and she says, Honey, I want you to tell me. She said, I want you to look at all the consequences for what you're doing. And when she was all done, she'd say, Now, are you willing to continue in this little relationship? And I'd say, Yes. I want what I want when I want it. That's awful painful. She had this other little saying I didn't like. She used to say, honey, the world gets narrower and the horizon gets broader. I didn't like that. I didn't understand what it meant at all. Today I do. What I did in my first few years of sobriety, if I had continued to do, I would drink. And as time went on, I learned that the road got narrower and the horizon got broader. That I could not do the things that I did within my first few years. She used to out in California they call you a baby when you're in when you when you have a sponsor, you're their baby. She'd say, Enjoy your babyhood because the road gets narrower and the horizon gets broader. And it did get narrower and the pain got worse. And she'd say, You promised me you wouldn't drink, you wouldn't use and you wouldn't kill yourself. She always had to add that. I was gonna kill myself if I didn't get my own way. The height of selfishness. Okay, God, you didn't do it my way, I'll kill myself, you know. Somebody talked about that once and I finally understood that. Now it took some time when I finally at three years of sobriety took my cake and I was crying and I knew I had made the mistake of listening. I knew that alcohol wasn't my solution anymore and I had to get down to the cause and condition no longer could I blame alcohol, just alcohol, for what I was doing because I was doing what I was doing when I was drinking. And there is something in there in the book where it says that we think a man is unthinking. We think sobriety is enough. Maybe it's enough at first. But if I wanted to live with some happy, joys and free, then maybe I had to do some changing. And I knew that I wanted what you people had and I, if I had to get that, I had to do what these lines said. I couldn't just talk it. So life started to change for me. And I would like to be able to say that, you know, I just stopped doing the things that hurt me. But all I can claim is spiritual progress. It took me seven years to give up married men in this program. I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of that at all. It took many inventories before I understood why I did that. What was the cause of that condition? until I realized that to be a battered wife, marriage meant pain. So I had to pick people that were safe, and married men were safe. You see, if you ever hit me, I could leave. Now, I didn't know that then. It took me some time to understand that. I had to get down to the exact nature of my wrongs. I can remember one 
night after after one of the meetings, I used to always go to the Saturday Night Nest at the Nest. They had an old timers meeting, and Bev and Hugh were all there at that time. And um, I uh, would go afterwards, and I would sit and I would um, have coffee with them and catch up with what was going on. And I was sitting there one night, and Hugh had this way of how he believes in. He died a month and a half ago. He was raised in Joplin, Missouri, and I saw where he was raised um, yesterday. It means a lot to be here. But he had a way of teaching me because I was so scared of him. I didn't like him a lot. He'd yell at me and he'd always cut me right through, you know, with what the hell I was up to. <laughs> he was always saying, what do you want now? I'd say, well, I want that guy or I want that job or I want that something. And he'd say, oh, God. One night he came in and I sat down and he said, what do you want? I said, I know what I want. He said, what? I said, I, I want peace of mind. He says, why do you want that? I said, because if I have peace of mind, I can be happy with that guy or without that guy, with that job or without that job. And he said, Bev? She said, yeah. I said, come in here. I think we got one. He was sitting in that coffee shop, and somebody asked him about the fourth step. Now, I'd done thousands of fourth steps. I mean, you know, books. Poor Beverly, she'd sit and listen to all that stuff, and when I get done, she'd say, Honey, that's a good beginning. But I overheard him talking about fourth steps. And uh, that's how I learned. He'd talk to somebody else, and I'd listen. And he said to this person, this person said, well, how, you want to do a fourth step? And he said, you do? And he says, well, he said, remember, you're going to write a fearless moral inventory. He says, what are your morals and your values, and where did you go against them? Not what your mother's and father's morals are, or what the church's morals and values are, but what are your morals, and where did you go against them? And I was sitting there thinking, and I thought, well, I know what Beverly's morals are, and I know what my mother's and father's morals are, but what are my morals, and where did I go against them? I never asked that question. And I went home, and I wrote that down. What are my morals, and where did I go against them? I used to get to the point that, I thought for a long time that the fourth step said to, to write a fearful garbage inventory. I was sure of it. You know, everybody was always afraid about the fourth step, so obviously it was something to fear. It didn't say that at all. It says to write a fearless moral inventory, and then to admit the exact nature of your wrongs. 
It's not to say that I didn't talk about all those deep, dark things that you wouldn't talk about even to yourself, let alone someone else. I had to do that. But then I had to get down to the exact nature of my wrongs and what I didn't like about Mary Fair in regard to whatever it was. When I finished with my inventory that time, I sat down, it was probably about a page long, and I told Beverly the exact nature of my wrongs. And when I was done, she looked at me and she said, you have done a thorough fourth step and fifth step. When I first did the, the steps, I had to do them. I had to do them. You know, there's promises after them. And now, you know, it's kind of like when I took a drink. I took a drink for the effect. I take the steps today for the effect. There are promises after the steps. There's promises after the third step. And there's promises after the fifth step. And one of those promises are that you will feel a nearness to your Creator. And I wanted that. You see, this program, I found out, has nothing to do with how intellectual I am. It had nothing to do with how much I knew which page and which black line. The only thing that we claim is spiritual progress, not intellectual enlightenment. It took me a long time to hear that. But one of the things, and everybody has what they have, and this is what I have, and this is my story, and this is how it came to me. I came to find out that the main purpose in this book was to find a God to solve your problem. I found that God. I found that God. And my God appears to me, or comes to me, with something that's inside of me. It's like a voice. I don't know how to explain it other than that to you. I do know that around four years of sobriety, I get the feeling that I was driving down the freeway out there, that um, I didn't want to raise this little girl anymore in that smog-filled area. And you know, you, can, you hear this smog alert. Don't go out, don't go play, don't go on the playground. I said, what am I doing here? So I decided that I wanted to move. I was talking to this old time over at Radford, and she said to me, Honey, she says, just pray about it. She says, don't talk to everybody about it. Just pray about it. She says, if the answer's to come, it will come. And it did. About a year went by, and I went back for my father's 80th birthday. He had rented a place up in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. And um, we had the big party and everything, and I was there for a couple of weeks. And I went over to Brunswick, and I went into... The meeting and I came back that night and I went to bed and I got into my bed and I was laying there and I knew there was a presence in that room. I don't know how to explain it other than that. It was very quiet, it was very loving, but it was just, there was a stillness and inside myself I said, what is it? And this voice said, this is where you'll live. And I got up the next morning and I went out and I said, Dad, I think I'd like to move to Maine. He said, I think that's a good idea. Your aunt and uncle are over there in Brunswick and it's a good place and so forth. And I said, well, all right. I said, I need to earn probably about $1,000 to get back. At that time, I was selling real estate part-time out in California. And I'd had a house on the market forever. 
And uh, I went back to California and it sold. It was a 30-day escrow and on December 6th I left uh, California and I head for me. I got there and I didn't know what the hell I was doing there. I mean, it was unbelievable. I walked into meetings, there was no big book on the podium, nobody was talking about the book and the steps, you know. I don't know where Rosemary was for them, but anyway, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I thought I was on an island someplace. I didn't know what was happening. And, you know, I'd be sitting there, the only thing that I knew, I was raised on the big book in the 12 and 12 for five years, and in California at five years of sobriety, you're a newcomer. And I knew that. I mean, I just scratched the surface of what this program was all about at five years. And I was just, you know, I wasn't too well, but most of the time, 99% of the time, I was the oldest member in a meeting. Maybe that has something to do with the fact there was no big book in 12 and 12, you know. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure they, it was around. And I wasn't liked too well. I mean, I would get up and I would talk, and there'd be people saying, why don't you go back to California? I was kind of known as the big book lady, you know. Um, I used to call Beverly and I'd be crying and she'd say, honey, she says, you're not in a popularity contest. She says, you know, you know how to stay sober. If you don't like what's going on, go start a meeting. So I did. The one thing I think, the real truth about why I feel as though I'm sober today the real ingredient, you know, how do you work bone marrow with all stuff? I have remained teachable. Thank you for that, God. I think that's the true ingredient that was God given to me, that I have remained teachable. And I started this meeting, it's still going on. There's lots of big book meetings and 12 and 12 meetings in Brunswick, Maine area. It's nice, come visit. But it was hard. It would have been the first time that I had felt rejection in AA when I was there. I was used to being able to sit at the feet of the gurus of California, and there's a lot of them out there. Thank you, God, for that. That adversary that was Hugh Douglas's um, uh, sponsor, I got to know. His name was Larry Blake. He used to carry a cane and hold court. And I mean, you know, he didn't get away with anything, for God's sakes, you know, with him. And I was scared to death of him. But we became very good friends. There was another man that came and visited about two years before he died. He came to California because he was, he knew he was dying and he needed the warm weather. And he used to come in the winter. His name was Bill Bussa. And he had 29 years of sobriety when he died. He came out of Minnesota. And, um, he and I became very good friends, and he used to say things to me like, Mary Thier, if you love someone that much, don't give them anybody as sick as you. Now, I don't like hearing that, but that was the truth. They used to tell you the truth in those days. They didn't patch you into the grave with smiles. He used to say to me something like this. He'd say, honey, he says, you work these steps poorly until you learn to work them well. Because if you wait until you can do them perfectly, you will never do them at all. And that was true. 
and I have learned to work them poorly until I have learned to work them well. There are areas in my life that I can tell you I have had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. There's other areas in my life that I'm not quite through the 12 steps in, and I would imagine because life changes that there will be always an area of my life that's unmanageable. I have learned to apply these steps in all of my affairs. I believe they go from 1 to 12, 1 to 12, 1 to 12, 1 to 12, like a clock, you know? And I find that my life becomes unmanageable. I'm at the last half of my first step. And in that area, I have to learn to come to believe in a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. Sound thinking and balance. Beverly always had me looking at a dictionary. And for my third step, I use the second and third step together and I have to do something. I think to me they're action steps, they're not just voice steps. I have a God bag. Somebody told me about it. And I'm crazy about something and I've tried to do everything humanly possible about it and it's still crazy. I write it down on a piece of paper and I put it in the God bag. It's a funny thing, it works. It's the stupidest thing I ever heard, but when I did it, it worked. And usually how it worked is that I got peace and I got some calm. And my problem for a long time in those first three years, that to me is a long time, was that I dropped the rest of the steps when it got calm. And it says on page 64 that when you make that decision to turn your will over to care of God, that that is a major decision and that it will have little or lasting effect if it is not at once followed by an inventory. And that's why my sobriety would go up and then down, up and then down, because I'd only go to the third step and then I'd drop the rest of the ball. Now Clancy says something and I'd go anywhere to listen to that man talk. I didn't want him as a sponsor, but I'd go anywhere to listen to him talk. But he used to say something. He says that we used to come into Alcoholics Anonymous and we were like um, a scale and we'd be out, you know, we'd be tipped. And he said that down here <clears throat> was the steps and you take like a little shovel and, and you'd kind of put them on one, two, three, four, five, and all of a sudden we'd come into balance. He says, and then all of a sudden we'd drop the spoon, we'd go out of balance again. And after a while he realized that if he kept just shoveling a little bit here, he could stay balanced. And that's exactly what the steps are for me. Today they are tools. They are spiritual tools. It took me two or three times through the book before I realized where it says there is a solution. There was nothing left for us to do but to pick up the kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. I didn't understand I was 12 steps. They're spiritual tools, they're not weapons. When I arrived in Maine, I was five years sober. Um, my daughter was 15 years old. And it came to me that I wanted to be a mother. Big of me, right? So something about selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our problem. Now I want to be a mother. She's 15. I was mad at God. Damn it, God. Why can't she be little now? I want to be the mother. Very sick. And it was hard because I realized that I had been running to AA meetings 
again like I ran to the bars because I didn't want to deal with what was at home. I didn't want to deal with the pain that I'd given this child in many years. Not only, I'm sorry, not only in my drinking, but in my, in my sobriety. I put sponsees ahead of that child. I'm not proud of this. I share it so that maybe another mother doesn't have to do that. I had been going down and on enough. Thank you, God, for that. One of those little coincidences, how I got there, but I did. My daughter was um, not necessarily ready for me to be the mother. And uh, so I, ha I must say that now I'll be 19 years next month, and um, since five years of sobriety I've been working on this, and I think an amends step is how we do this thing. It's, it's not going to work overnight. And I, you know, I, you know, I work slowly. I, my prayer became, God, make me the mother you want me to be. I don't know how to be a mother. How do you be a mother after you've been an alcoholic mother? God, I need to have some direction. And God put into my life the people and the things to do that. My daughter graduated about six years ago from Springfield College and had a master's um, in education that specialized in family system theory. And about that time, I had gotten married at 10 years of sobriety. I married one of my a good friend in AA. He still is a good friend. Um, and after three years, I realized he was a good friend to be married to. And we got a divorce, and we did it with dignity. Thank you. Um, but um, Candace, um, I went to this, this family systems um, therapist uh, when I was getting this divorce, because I wanted to make sure that where I was and what was happening. And she, after I got the divorce stuff, was going to have a class in family therapy and to teach, teach uh, other therapists how to, to um, family systems theory. And she asked me if I would be one of her um, students. And I asked my daughter if she'd like to be one of the students, too, because she could get an extra certification if she went through this class. She says, yeah, Mom, I'll do that. I don't wish this on anybody. Half the time, I would say most of the time, we were the center of the class's attention. It got to the point that Phoebe, the therapist, would say, Mary, you drive your car, Candace, you drive your car. I mean, we were never talking when we left. Anything I forgot I did, she reminded me I did. So I didn't have to worry about taking an inventory. She took mine all the time, all the time. And it was rough. And I, not everybody has to do this. By any means, they don't. But I did it because I wanted to be a mother. And I didn't know how to be a mother. And I've learned how to ask. I've learned how to ask. During that, this woman has a theory, this therapist has a theory. She believes that the way to handle, to, to uh, heal a family system is that the mother and father of the child have to be on speaking terms. I thought that was asinine. I mean, God, this guy beat me up. You know, he never supported her. Sure, he got sober a couple of years after I did. But Christ, he got sober in that nest out there. And it was like lousy sobriety. And I thought he was crazed. 
and I just didn't like him. There was no part at all I wanted to do with this man. Well, Phoebe and I thought about this for about a year in the class, and then finally after a year I said, all right, all right, all right. And so how are we going to do this? And Candace piped up and said, well, Dad has a Watts line, um, an 800 number. Possibly we could work this on the phone. And so it was arranged. She called him and asked him if he would be willing to participate in this, and um, he said he would. So Phoebe got on one extension and I on the other and Lewis on the other. And we talked for the first time. I hadn't talked to him since she was 18. Figured never had to talk to him again, you know. And as we talked, it was kind of rough. I mean, you know, Phoebe would be saying, Mary Thayer, Lewis said this, and it would be vice versa. And Lewis, Mary Thayer said this. But after a while, we came down to an agreement that I would talk to him every week and a half, two weeks, and that he would learn who his child was. He had never bonded with her. He was drunk when she was born and drunk for many years afterwards, too. And we did that. And I'm proud to say that he's probably my best friend today. Now, I owe that to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, there's three chapters in this book that in a book study, most of the people just jump up and they run out. They don't even pay any attention to them. It's to the employer, to the wives, and to the family afterwards. And I was looking through this book after when this was going on, and I came across the family afterwards, and in the first paragraph it says, all members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. This involves a process of deflation. I was 14 years sober. All members of the family. I didn't even consider him a member of the family. It took me 14 years to understand that was the father of my child. After this happened, it was about five years ago, I um, heard about this woman that was going to speak in Portland, Maine. Now, this is a woman that isn't in the program or anything, but she's a woman that I really appreciate. I heard her, I used to hear her on television out in California. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she had, uh, she spoke um, in Portland, Maine, and there's about 2,000 people there. And one of the things she asked was, I want everybody in this room who is doing exactly what they want to do in their life to raise their hand. And as I looked around this room of 2,000 people, I was not the only one with my hand not raised. And as I left, I picked up her newsletter. And she's known as kind of like the deaf and dying lady. She brought hospice to the United States. Hospice is where you deal with people who are terminally ill and with people who have experienced loss and transition in their life. And I went home and I was reading her newsletter and there was this little ad for a college in Española, New Mexico. And it advertised the college as having the only two-year accredited degree in hospice and grief counseling. And this voice said inside of me, that's what you'll do. I said, what? And it just kept prompting me to at least get the information on it. 
and I didn't quite understand this because I was, um, at that time I had worked for this company in uh, Bath, Maine for almost 11 years. I was a buyer of major hull equipment for Navy ships. I mean, what did I want to do going to this college in Española, New Mexico? Where is Española, New Mexico? I didn't even know where this was, but the voice said, this is what you'll do. And I have learned, as it says on this, in this book, that we have a new employer, a new father, all-powerful, all-loving. And I have learned to follow that direction, and thank you for that. I left uh, Maine, <laughs> and I drove out three years ago to New Mexico. And I arrived, and I did not know whether or not, um, you know, where I was going to live or anything. But prior to that, I have learned that no matter where I go in this world, there's always another AA member. And I called central office, and this person said, I'll meet you at, the, at a meeting. And I ended up um, staying with them for a week until I found a place. And there was a woman in this hospice program who was an AA who needed a roommate, you know, one of those coincidences. And I ended up staying for two years. I must say it was the happiest two years of my life studying uh, about death and dying. The more I studied about death and dying, the more I learned about life. The more I learned about myself. I used to sit in those halls and I just realized, just, I'd be so excited and I didn't know why I was so excited. I didn't think I could study anymore and I thought I was too old for all of this and I ended up with a 4.0 in it. I mean, it was like, you know, I just really, really loved this. I found for myself that I realized, Hugh used to say this to me all the time, he says, we alcoholics um, are backwards. He says, we know everything about death and dying. We don't know anything about living in life. And that's true. I know all about that pain. But I didn't know how to get rid of it. I didn't understand the grief process. I didn't know all those times I cried in, those, in my beer, how much that was repressed grief, all those tears I had to share. We have the best program in the world to get rid of this stuff. Clear away the records of your past and come join us. And that's exactly what I learned. I graduated from there and I was going on to another, another um, school and, and that's when we found out that Hugh was sick. And I ended up going back to uh, California to be with him and Beverly for three months. And they went, he wasn't supposed to live until last Christmas, but um, he fooled him. And uh, so I stayed with them for three months anyway. And that was an experience, and that's a real rough one. Not everybody goes through their sobriety having a sponsor for 18, 19 years. It was very hard to be with the people. This morning I talked to Beverly. Uh, she sends her love. I know a lot of you people have heard her at that was it springtime in the Ozarks, her and Bev. She sends her love. She's very partial to this. I shared with her that I'd gone by and seen Hugh where Hugh was raised. Um, I'm very fortunate to have the sponsorship that I've had. I'm very very fortunate to be part of their lives. Um, that little girl um, that my daughter is now in Iceland, she's a family therapist up there and her husband's in the service. She'll be coming back to the States um, um, this, this year. Uh, well, actually in January she'll be in West. I'm pleased. She married a, a man in this program, a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, I remember when I saw him, he had about a year of sobriety. I told him it was time to get involved, never knowing he'd be my son-in-law. 
but um, he is, and I'm proud of it. Uh, um, I, I, um, after being out at school for a semester when she called and told me she was going to Iceland, she wanted me to come home, and I was going out to see Bevan Hugh for that Christmas, and I said, she, Candace, I was going to see Bevan Hugh. I said, let me call you back, and I called her father, and I said, Lou, I said, do you want to meet your son-in-law? I said, um, you know, you didn't come back for the wedding, but possibly you might want to meet him. They're going to Iceland for three years. He said, book the flight. And so um, I, he lives about half an hour from Bevan Hugh, and, and so we got on a plane on January 3rd, two years ago. We flew back to Maine, and we got off. And before that, I must, I always forget this, but I did call Candace and I said, would you like to pick up your father and your mother on January 3rd? And she said, that'll be different. And we walked through that airport and as we walked through that airport, she's turned around and she started to laugh. And I said, what are you laughing at? And she said, this is the first time I've ever seen you two talk. She says, usually you're screaming and yelling like crazy people. She says, I don't know why I thought that this would make a difference to me, but it does. And the next day we sat in that therapist's office and she said to me, how do you feel? And I told her and asked Lewis how he felt and then asked Candace. And Candace said this is the first time in her life that she could ever remember that her mother and father had done something for her. The therapist told me that I gave my child the biggest thing that could happen because, you know, I, I didn't like what I was. And if I'd have known better, I'd have done better, yes, but I did a rotten effing job. I really did. But in my recovery, I have given her a gift. I have given her a gift that I believe each one of us can give a child. It is an example to show them that we can change. How many of our parents changed? We can show them that. That is the biggest gift. I'm done.